City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. It's a fact of life that doesn't really need to be explained that each one of us is going to be criticized at some time or other in our lives. Nobody knows this better than a committed Christian. Even the world gets criticized. You can't go through life without someone criticizing you. And when you take as a committed Christian some biblical stands, you will be criticized. There's no ifs about it. It happens. Your friends will criticize you. Your enemies will criticize you, certainly. And there are many reasons that people have critics. Some of them are fear. People criticize because of fear, jealousy, conviction of sin, ignorance, prejudice. All of us do it at times, and all of us receive it at times. Nobody knew more about being criticized and having critics than the people that Peter was writing to. As we've gone over the historical background of this a number of times, nobody knew what it was like to be criticized quite like these people. Once again, we are poised and ready to jump into 1 Peter with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. The Apostle Peter was encouraging the early Christians to be ready for trials and persecutions. One of the types of persecutions the early believers faced was false accusations. Here are some examples. Early Christians were called cannibals. Some accused Christians of killing and eating their children during their celebration of the Lord's Supper. They were also accused of breaking up families, encouraging slaves to rebel, and they were accused of hating humanity. Now, (laughs) how would you respond to those kind of charges? Not an easy thing, and that's why Peter addressed the subject of persecution. We have a lot of ground to cover in today's Verse by Verse, so buckle up and let's get going. And while you're getting comfortable, will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? We are dealing with this tremendous book and learning a lot of things about it, about the Word of God, about insight into how to handle persecution, ridicule, the world's attitudes. And I'm going to read beginning at verse 11 until verse 20. You follow with me. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men." Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
Father, we pray tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a fact of life that doesn't really need to be explained that each one of us is going to be criticized at some time or other in our lives. Nobody knows this better than a committed Christian. Even the world gets criticized. You can't go through life without someone criticizing you. And when you take, as a committed Christian, some biblical stands, you will be criticized. There's no ifs about it. It happens. Your friends will criticize you. Your enemies will criticize you, certainly. And there are many reasons that people have critics. Some of them are fear. People criticize because of fear, jealousy, conviction of sin, ignorance, prejudice. All of us do it at times, and all of us receive it at times. Nobody knew more about being criticized and having critics than the people that Peter was writing to. As we've gone over the historical background of this a number of times, nobody knew what it was like to be criticized quite like these people. These Christians didn't win, as you well know, any popularity contest. I often think that one of the worst things to get in a funny kind of a way is to win second prize in the beauty contest of Monopoly. They couldn't even do that. They had critics coming all over. They were so unpopular, these early Christians. Now, in the early days of the church, Christianity was considered, as we said this morning, to be a form of Judaism, a sect of Judaism. And so the world just kind of linked them together. And since anti-Semitism was just running rampant through the Roman Empire, the Christians really were persecuted because they were just considered part of that. There's a book called Roman Life and Manners Under the Early Empire, And it gives a statement concerning slanders against the Jews. You want to know what the Jews were slandered for in that day? And remember, as the Jews were slandered in that day, so the Christians really fit into that whole scheme of things. I quote, According to Tacitus, they, the Jews, taught their proselytes, above all, to despise the gods, to renounce their fatherland, to disregard parents, children, brothers, and sisters. According to a man named Juvenal, Moses taught the Jews not to show anyone the way nor to guide the thirsty traveler to the spring, except he were a Jew, in other words, to get water. Apion declares that in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews every year fattened a Greek, and having solemnly offered him up as a sacrifice on a fixed day in a certain forest, they ate his entrails, which in other words means his inner organs or his guts, and they swore eternal hostility to the Greeks. Now, this was the slander that the Jews faced, and the people believed it. This may sound crazy to us, and we might think, who would believe such a silly thing like that? Well, even in our day and age with anti-Semitism, all you have to do is read at the turn of the century what the Russians thought of the Jews in Russia, and they would have all kinds of hostilities towards them. It isn't that far-fetched, and it really is true. And this is how they viewed it, and people believed it. But there were other slanderous things specifically pointed at Christians, There were things that they were saying about Christians in the early church that we really are so far removed that we don't even think about this. Let me show you some of the things they were accused of. The fathers of our faith, the early Christians, were accused of cannibalism. Did you know that? And the pagans distorted the words when Jesus said at the Last Supper, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, and this is my blood, which is shed for you. The pagans took that to mean that the Christians were accused of killing and eating children at their feasts. Jesus said that literally they were going to drink blood of a human and eat the flesh of a human. So the early Christians were accused of cannibalism. These are the people that Peter is writing to. They were accused of immorality and incest. They called their meetings the agape meetings, which means the love feast. This was interpreted to mean that Christian feasts were sensual orgies, having shameful deeds. 
They were accused of damaging businesses, and you can well understand that. Some of these accusations are valid, at least this is. Remember in Acts chapter 19, when Paul came into the city of Ephesus, how they got all enraged because when some people were converted, they threw away their idols, and they figured it out. If everybody threw away their idols, and we being idol makers, our businesses kaput. We'll have to go into something else. And so sometimes the early Christians damaged businesses. They were accused of breaking up families because it created problems when one member of the family came to Christ and another didn't, especially, as we'll see in a few weeks, especially if it was the wife. It was unheard of in the Roman Empire for a wife to believe anything different than a husband. They were accused of turning slaves against their masters because Christianity gave to the slave and to every person a new sense of worth and dignity, and that really messed up the whole slave system. They were accused of hating mankind because they spoke of the world and the church as being opposed to each other. But above all, they were accused of being disloyal to Caesar, disloyal to the state, because no committed Christian would worship the emperor's godhead and burn his pinch of incense and declare that Caesar was Lord. Now, how do you answer charges like that? How do you silence your critics? If you lived in that day, what would you do? I'll tell you, if it happened today, this may sound weird, but you know what we do? We'd probably take out an advertisement in the St. Pete Times and deny all these things. Or some theologian would write a book and list a whole set of reasons theologically why we don't hold to these accusations. The natural way really would be to defend yourself, to argue, try to convince your critics by proof that this is not valid. All this leads really to is frustration, pride because you lose arguments, defending yourself hostility, bitterness, because you can't really convince people like this that anything is different. The supernatural way is to live a godly life and to prove by your life that what their accusations are, are false. It's as simple as that. Peter's message is to live a godly life, and that's how you silence your critics. So if you came to hear that tonight, the rest of the message is explaining about living a godly life. And Peter's message really is, listen, your loudest message and most convincing argument is going to be your behavior in front of an unbelieving world. And this applies even to Christians who might criticize you. Don't try to argue. Don't try to convince people. You just live a godly life and let God take care of your defense. Even the Greek philosopher Plato knew this. He was not a Christian by far. When he was told that a certain man had been making slanderous charges against him, he said, I will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says. And that's really the word of God's message to us. We will live in such a way that nobody can slander us and it would be valid. Now, if it's valid, then you have some repenting to do and asking forgiveness. As we went over this morning, the problems of taking our dirty laundry and hanging it out before the world. But if you're not guilty, and God is assuming here that you are not guilty of some of these things, you, by living a godly life and myself, will put away all the slanders and criticisms against us. But unfortunately, many Christians don't handle criticism this way. They fight back, they gossip, they resist, they turn bitter. Others, on the other hand, compromise. They hear the world criticizes them or a Christian criticizes them, and they simply are living to please other people. And they compromise, and they try to look good in the world's eyes or in other people's eyes. Now, in this passage of Scripture, Peter takes three roles that a Christian has and teaches us to behave properly in each one of these roles. And the three roles are these, as a stranger or a pilgrim, as a citizen, and as a servant. We're to live properly, live at our lives on this earth properly within those three roles. Number one, a stranger, verses 11 and 12. He says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Well, let's stop there. If we're ever to silence our critics, 
we must come face to face with reality of who we are. We are, in the world's eyes, and God calls us, pilgrims, strangers, foreigners. We're aliens and we're strangers. This is not our home permanently. We sometimes live like this. The Apostle Paul wrote Timothy and said, no soldier who God has called into service gets entangled in the affairs of this life. We live like that, like we're going to be here forever, but we're not. We're just passing through. Paul said that we are citizens of heaven. Now, the word alien, strangers, could be translated foreigners and outsiders. It means someone who dwells in a place but really doesn't fit in. He's there, but he's really not a full-fledged citizen. It's used of Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith, he, that is Abraham, lived as an outsider or an alien in the lands of promise. Abraham wasn't at home among the Canaanites. History tells us that pornography first came from the Canaanites. Abraham wasn't at home there, but he lived there. He lived amongst them, but he wasn't really part of their culture. That's what God means. You're here, but you're not really part of the system. But we studied last week verses 9 and 10, which God says you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. But that's what God says we are. But the world perceives us differently. And what Peter is saying is, look, I've told you what God says you are, but now come down to reality as far as the people, what they think you are. And to them, you are an outsider. And as far as God is concerned, on this earth, you're an outsider. You have no royal priesthood. At least you're not treated like you have any royal priesthood here on earth. You're not treated on earth as if you're a chosen race. But on earth, you're a pilgrim. You're a stranger, you're a foreigner, you're an outsider, you are an alien. You don't fit in. And the problem is, we try to fit in. We try to be like everybody else. And we're not. I've said this over and over and over again. We're just passing through. And the way you keep from getting caught up in the world system, the first way is that we must have a stranger mentality. Now, I didn't say a strange mentality. But as strangers, we have to have that kind of mentality, that thinking The unsaved person's ways are fine for them. And I said this the other week in a morning message. We cannot change their morality. And I am in opposition to through politics or any other means of trying to change and legislate morality. It just isn't done. Billy Sunday spent most of his Christian life trying to change the morality of unbelievers, and it didn't do any good. Now, to believers, you give them the standard of God's word. But to unbelievers, you cannot change that. And you can't pass laws to change anybody's heart. So I said before, you can't change a pig. We're not saying they're pigs, but we're saying this, that you can't change the nature of a pig. He's going to go right back to dirt, no matter how good he looks on the outside. And when we use this term, and I see this a lot, righteousness exalts a nation. It certainly does, but remember the context. That is given to Israel. And God said, Israel, you can live righteously because you have trusted me. You are righteous. It does not say Passing of righteous laws makes a righteous nation. You can't make a righteous nation, but that your heart has changed. We can't take that out of context. That is not for America to say if you pass righteous laws dealing with homosexuals and others, you're going to make a righteous nation. That's not how it's done. You're just going to find that a lot of people break laws. So he says you're going to have a stranger mentality. Now, let me give you an illustration that we, while we're in the world, we are not to handle certain things that the world handles. And this is an illustration that probably isn't that good, but it's the only one I can think of. We ever go to Mexico, maybe some of you have been there, you always hear, don't drink the water, right? Now, you don't hear Mexicans telling Mexicans that. Why? Because their system is used to that. They can handle that. But you and I will get Geronimo's revenge if we ever do that. Our system is not built for that. So the Christian in this world is not built 
to handle certain things. He is made differently. He has received a new nature, and therefore he should not handle certain things that others can handle. Others can, but we cannot. And that's why Peter goes on to say, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Because we're strangers, because we're outsiders, because we are not citizens of this world permanently, we are to refrain from what others can do. When we hear the term fleshly lust, too many times we think of sexual sins and bodily sins, but that's not all there is. I want you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. You'll see verses 19 through 21. You'll see that's not all, although that's part of it. That's not all that fleshly sins are. Galatians chapter 5. Now the deeds of the flesh, verse 19, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, but it's also idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these of which I forewarn you as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the flesh. And he says that you are to refrain from these things When you became a Christian, you received another nature. You have God's nature within you. An unsaved person doesn't. And when you do certain things that you wanted to do before, you become miserable. I'll never forget the first time shortly after I was converted at the University of South Florida. I'll never forget the fellow who led me to Christ. I didn't know it at the time. He was sitting in my dorm room, and I opened the door, and the lock jutted out and cut my wrist rather severely. And being raised on the streets of Brooklyn, New York, I had some language that was from the streets of Brooklyn, New York, and I just let it all out. I saw when I opened the door that my Christian friend was standing there, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God convicted me deeply, and I had never known anything quite like this as a Christian. And I looked and I turned to him and I said, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Now, before, maybe two weeks before that, I could have said that and nothing would have bothered me about that. But when you become a Christian, if you don't refrain from fleshly things, you are going to be miserable. Peter calls it a war. And the Greek word for war means it's a military campaign. World War III is raging inside of you whenever you battle like that. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. But these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He illustrates this in Romans 7. He says, The things that I want to do, I can't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. It's a battle. It's nothing new to us. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before. Unsaved people can do certain things. It doesn't bother them. They don't have the Spirit of God within them, convicting them or showing them that he's grieved. I remember the greatest battle I I ever had in my life, and this is just another illustration of this. When I lived in Miami, my parents had a very close friend who had, at that time, recently had a heart attack. And I had never shared the gospel with him. Oh, he knew I was a religious fanatic, but I had never shared with him the word of God. And so I can remember one day I just had this immense burden to share with him, but I'm a coward by nature, and so I decided to excuse that in my mind. I, you know, certainly this wasn't the right time to tell him. But the Spirit of God kept impressing it upon me. He's just had a heart attack. You're going to be going back to school. You don't know when you'll see him again. He may die and you won't see him. And I said, but I can't. What will he think of me? And the Spirit of God kept impressing upon me to go and share with him. And there was a battle raging. It was a military campaign within me. In case you're wondering, I did go and share with him. And he was very open to the gospel. And I thought, why did I get all troubled about it? But this is what happens. The spirit and the flesh just wage war against each other. 
And the Christian who doesn't abstain, and we're talking about a desire now, but gives in to that continually, is guilt-ridden, he's frustrated, he's jealous of others because they don't give in, he's critical. You ever meet a person who always has a spiritual chip on their shoulder? Well, it comes from this. There's something wrong, and you only see the outside, but there's something wrong inside. He's prone to excuses. Many times he has physical problems. Headaches, we're not saying that everyone has a physical problem. This is the reason, but someone can have headaches, stomach aches, strain, fatigue, all because they are not refraining from sins. And it could be attitudes. It could be actions and attitudes. Now, that's the negative that Peter says. But then he goes on to say, the positive way a stranger is to behave is verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. I had a friend at Moody who warned me that this ought to be my life's verse at Moody, since I was one of the few Jews there. But that's not what Peter means. He doesn't mean Gentiles in the sense of all Gentiles. He means unbelieving pagans. Keep your conversation or behavior or conduct honest or good. In some of our versions, it says keep your conversation honest. The word means behavior. Conversation was a word that they used in the 17th century, which at that time did mean conduct. But in our day and age, it just means talk. He is not talking just about keeping your talk excellent. He says keep your whole behavior good or excellent. Now, the words for good, there are two Greek words for good. One means good in quality, but that's not the word used here. The word here means not only good in quality, but also lovely, winsome, fine, attractive, something that's beautiful, something that's fine and lovely. What Peter is saying is that a Christian's conduct ought to be so lovely, so pure, so fine, so morally excellent that the slanders of unbelievers will simply be put to shame. They'll see that there's no validity there. It'll prove to be false by your conduct. There's a German philosopher named Hein who said this, you show me your redeemed life and I will be inclined to believe in your redeemer. If you show me your life and you say that this is why you're a believer, I may believe in your God. But unfortunately, the world looks at us and says, they're no different than we are. They have the same attitudes about money. They're just as greedy as I am. They have the same attitudes about covetousness. They lust. They do all kinds of things. They have the same attitude about their job. They complain on their job. They're critical of others. They gossip. They slander. Why bother believing what they have to say? They're no different than I am. Alexander McLaren, that great expositor of Scripture, said this, The world takes its notions of God, most of all from the people who say they belong to God. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus. The world watches to see what kind of a Christian you are. You know... You may not realize it, and I know I don't realize it, but people are watching. You may think nobody's watching me, but people are watching. All you have to do is slip one time, and they'll tell you. But people are watching you on your jobs. If you're in school, they're watching you. While you're at church, people who are here are taking notice of your life. And they stumble when you stumble. And they're encouraged when you walk with God. I don't know who they are, and I'm not thinking of anything in specifics, but I know that people are watching. Everyone here has somebody watching them, and many people. And your Christian life is being read, whether you realize it or not. And when you slip, all kinds of criticisms come. The world watches. There was a pastor in England one time who got on a bus. The bus driver handed him back extra change. This is a true story. He handed him back extra change. He gave him too much money, and when the man went down to his seat, he sat down, he noticed it. He had a battle all the while that that bus was going on what he should do with that extra money. But he decided the right thing to do was to go and return it to the bus driver. And when the bus stopped and he had to get off, 
He went to the bus driver and he said, you gave me too much change. And the bus driver said, I know. He said, you know, why did you do that? He said, well, he said, I was in your congregation last week when you preached on honesty. And I wanted to see if you practice what you preached. Toward the end of today's program, Pastor Steve gave us this quote from a German philosopher. You show me your redeemed life, and I will be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Now, what went through your mind when you heard that? Pastor Steve then listed out several areas where all too often, we as Christians are no different than the people without Christ. Now that list was sobering and deeply convicting. On our next program, Pastor Steve is going to continue talking about how people watch us and how important it is that we are Christ-like in our lives. Here on our verse-by-verse radio program, we have been studying the book of 1 Peter. And I have to say, this has been a powerful series. Please join us next time as Pastor Steve has much more to teach us on the next verse-by-verse. Verse.